Welcome to the Why Invest podcast with me, Doug Barnett, Portfolio Manager at Waverton. Now, there's always a section or a slide in a fund manager's presentation called Investment Philosophy. And I always think it's an interesting section to read because it's not quite the process. It's not their style or their approach. And it certainly doesn't tell you anything about their performance. It is how the manager sees the world. And in this episode, we aim to explore and untangle some of these investment philosophies. We start with the godfather of investment management, Benjamin Graham, and go on to cover Warren Buffett, George Soros, Kathy Wood, and Ray Dalio, to name but a few. To do it, I'm joined by the superb Charlie Jones, the co-manager of the Waverton Global Equity Fund and all-round investment encyclopedia. Now, if you're an investment geek, I think you're going to enjoy this one. So without further ado, this is the Why Invest podcast. Charlie Jones, welcome to the podcast. Charlie, in this episode, we are going to be talking about investment philosophy and specifically how investment philosophies differ from investment approaches and investment processes. So let's start with some definitions. What is an investment philosophy? Thanks, Doug, for having me on the podcast. I would say the easiest way to differentiate an investment philosophy from an investment process is that the philosophy is a set or a single principle or belief which helps an investor make a decision, whereas a process is applying your philosophy to the real world to select a specific investment or make an investment decision. And a philosophy is really quite important because there are a lot of challenges facing investors. Some include informational overload, a great deal of information around in the world. And some of it is limited time. Sometimes there's missing information. It's unclear. And a philosophy helps you manage these challenges in a way that makes it possible to actually implement whatever process you're trying to implement. Is it too cute to sum it up by saying an investment philosophy is what you think and an investment process is what you do? As that would have been a very clear answer if I'd started with that. <laughs> yeah, that's a, that's a very good description. Well, let's move on. Let's think about examples. And I think that maybe this is the easiest way to sort of approach a topic like this. Let's, let's think about some investment philosophies from some top fund managers. And I suppose the best place to start here is Benjamin Graham. And in fa- he, he famously said, in markets in the short run are like voting machines, and then markets in the long run are like weighing machines. And I've paraphrased that. I've, I've bastardized that quote, I'm afraid. But um, what did Ben mean by that? And how is that an investment philosophy? So if we fall back on a philosophy being what we think, we should remember that financial markets are large aggregated crowds of people who have a view. And they may or may not agree. Sometimes they all agree with each other. And that often is quite an exciting time in the stock market. And sometimes they disagree vehemently. Uh, Often those are actually the less exciting times in a stock market. And when Benjamin Graham described the market as a voting machine, he really meant that the aggregate view of the stock market or all of the individuals operating within the stock market had concluded one price. Now, that price may or may not have any bearing on rationality at all. And Ben Graham was a great proponent of trying to remember that a business 
is what's underlying a share price. And the share price over a very long period of time should hypothetically reflect the actual operating performance of the real world business. And this connects the financial markets with with the real world. And so he said that the financial market swings with the crowd, which is why it's a voting machine. But in the long run, it's a weighing machine because if you've got a great business, that will come through. If you've got a terrible business, it might be very popular in the short run, but but it, it may well fail and it might not stand the test of time. Do you think if Benjamin Graham is alive today, he would continue to believe that financial markets reflect the reality over the long run? Because you could argue that there's been a sort of uh, decoupling between those two points. So does his philosophy still hold? I think he would retain his philosophy largely unchanged. I think what he might well have changed is the process by which he identified these investments. So when he sort of wrote a lot of his books, it was based on his experiences during the Great Depression, where it was quite possible one day for a stock to be declared bankrupt by the market and the price collapse, and the next day for it to be declared not broke, (laughs) not bankrupt, and the, the price would rocket up again. And I think he would still view that if you just find the good business and the market on a day when the market's declared that it's bankrupt, buy it, uh, and in the end, that will sort itself out. I think where he he would definitely change though is the process because when he was investing in the Great Depression, he went around looking for businesses trading at less than their net working capital. This effectively means that this sort of inventory on hand and the IOUs from customers was valued at more than the share price, even once you deducted any debt. And those sorts of opportunities don't really exist anymore. I think I've found one in the last seven years, and I'm pretty sure- Was it in Japan? It was in Japan, and I'm pretty sure it's controlled by the Yakuza, <laughs> which, was, which was why I was trading where it was. <laughs> um, sadly, we didn't manage to meet the CEO to find out if he had any tattoos. But, um, so I think he, he would definitely have changed his process simply because- the opportunities to invest with that process no longer exist. But I think that the idea that buy a business for less than you believe it's worth, because the market on any one day is offering you a really attractive price versus what you think the true value of the business is, go and buy those. And in the end, uh, that should shine through. I think that still applies. Well, let's then move on to one of Benjamin's famous um, students, Warren Buffett. Now, Warren, when he started in his career, he, he talked about cigar butt investing, so finding sort of the last puffs of a cigar. What did he mean by that, first of all? So he used the cigar butt analogy as a means of showing that there's still value in something that someone else has discarded, in that if you uh, someone smokes a cigar and throws the butt away, if, say, you're willing to take the time. There's no reason why you can't wander around, pick up the cigar butt and take the final puff. So he started his career looking for businesses which had largely been discarded. No one was interested in them, but he still felt there was some value left in them. And he was picking those sorts of stocks. Interestingly, that probably is his, the closest he came to Benjamin Graham. And actually through his career, he, he did start to to move away from that uh, as a concept. Do you think that was the influence of his partner, Charlie Munger? Definitely. So when he went into business with Charlie Munger, and most notably through the Berkshire Hathaway 
partnership. Charlie Munger advised him to buy brilliant businesses on average prices, whereas up to that point, Warren Buffett had been searching for indifferently average businesses, but trading on incredibly cheap prices. And in some ways, Charlie Munger was probably more what we might categorize as a a growth investor rather than a value investor. And, And when discussing a growth investor, we mean a business that should be able to grow earnings, dividends, its cash flow available to investors in excess of inflation and the economy over a prolonged period by just owning those businesses. If you wait long enough, you should make money because the business fundamentally is doing better than the economy. So Warren Buffett, in one sense, kept his philosophy fixed in that he was still looking for businesses that were cheaper than he thought they were worth. But the difference was he now looked for great businesses that were cheaper than they were worth rather than bad businesses that were Mm. cheaper than they were worth. And I think that was probably one of the best sort of changes any investors made to their philosophy through their investing career. I mean, I suppose we could almost make the whole podcast just about Warren Buffett because, I mean, he is essentially an he's like an investment philosopher, and you know, he's come out with. I mean, his books are brilliant, and annual shareholder meetings are well worth listening to. But I think one quote that I love or a highlight of Warren's is um, investing is is all about purchasing power. So it is again about forgoing consumption today in order to have the ability to consume more at a later date. I think that's quite a neat way to think about investment, and particularly at a time like this where we're starting to sort of think about inflation returning. What did you mean by that? So I think it's very easy when investing to forget what the objective of investing is. And uh, many people have many different objectives, but a primary one is to accumulate savings during the earlier parts of your life to then draw down from them if you choose to later in your life. And the problem is inflation it continuously erodes the value of your savings if you just leave them in cash or often in fixed income at the moment. And if you don't invest in a manner that generates a return in excess of inflation, on a, a long-term basis, you'll find that your savings are worth considerably less in the future than they should have been. And this is what he means by purchasing power parity and that you want to make sure that your dollar today and your dollar in the future to you are worth the same thing, even if the dollar in nominal terms in the future is actually turned into $10. Do you think, uh, how else do you think Warren's philosophy has has changed? Or could you say that his philosophy has, has broadly speaking, stayed the same? It's just his process has changed. I think his philosophy has stayed the same. His process has definitely changed. And actually, in the last decade in particular, he's come under tremendous fire from perhaps not his own investors, but other market commentators for not adapting his processes to deal with a different global economic system. I think in America, it's very easy for investors to think that the the market is a a true free market economy. And it perhaps was more so when Warren Buffett started investing. It's perhaps less so today, given government and central bank intervention distorting the market that Warren Buffett grew up in. That's an interesting point unto itself, because therefore should, let's maybe take Warren Buffett out of it, but taking a step back and think, 
should people update their philosophies to match market environments or economic environments, different policy, both fiscal and monetary regimes? Again, I, I don't think you need to change the philosophy. I mean, the philosophy still stands. Taking a, a value investor, buy a business for less than you think it's worth, shouldn't really mm. change. I think what changes is what defines what a business is worth. And valuing a business is notoriously difficult. I think as a, a stock picker, I, I get it wrong quite regularly. And the challenge is working out what the cost of money is, because that's a key input into what a business is worth. How much money could it return you? Depends on how expensive money is. If money's free, you should effectively pay an infinite value for anything that generates you more money. If money is very expensive and you have to pay very high interest costs, say, uh, you actually want to be quite cautious before you make an investment because you, you'll be losing money through paying off your interest. So you need to make sure that you're, you're getting more back. And I think that's the key change is you might need to adapt how you analyze the true value of money, which does change and it is controlled by major economic institutions. I suppose the yardstick, of course, the cost of money is interest rates, and interest rates are low and indeed negative. I think seventeen trillion dollars worth of bonds are trading at negative rates. Does that mean that certain philosophies are out of favour for a long time? So, for example, if you're in a let's say you're in a sort of mean reversion type, uh, you have a mean reversion philosophy. So, in other words, you think that companies that are trading below their intrinsic value will return to their intrinsic value. If you're living in a world of low interest rates, does that mean that you're going to be led or you're going to be less inclined to be allocating capital at the grossier end of the market simply because you just can't believe the valuations at that end of the market? Uh, I think that's spot on. And I think that's often where major styles uh, or style outperformance occurs. So from 2001 to 2006, the market in aggregate was reflecting a view that money was more expensive and therefore you had to be more careful. And so investors who were naturally more careful tended to do better. Since the financial crisis, so that you've really had ultra-loose monetary policy. Since COVID, you're now getting potentially ultra-loose fiscal policy. And that's, that's the antithesis. That says that money is completely free you can waste as much of it as you like. And therefore, investors who are more uh, risk or pro-risk in terms of valuation, who perhaps trade on momentum strategies where you just buy the business that did well last year, you assume it'll do well again because it's popular and it's in vogue. They've done better. Perhaps last year, Cathy Woods, who runs Art Capital, might be the best example of a momentum investor who's benefiting hugely from money being effectively free. What would her philosophy be? I mean, is she... She's quite far away from, you know, cigar butting investing. She's quite far away from mean reversion investing. I mean, it's kind of, you know, if you find it, it doesn't matter where the cash flows, when the cash flows get to you, it, you know, buy the business if you have confidence that they will come. Definitely. She is really looking for the, the economy winners of 20 years time. So her philosophy is to try and identify the Amazons of 2040. and that in itself, I don't actually think it's a bad philosophy, but it's one that was particularly helped 
last year because if money's free, you can afford to wait 20 years and you can pay up uh, large sums of money for these shares. Interestingly, this year, people are starting to question whether money will remain free for much longer. And so you're starting to see market commentaries discussing inflation. Interest rates are starting to rise, which, which makes money more expensive to kind of hold on and wait for it to come good, leading to a flow of money away from these very innovative, very exciting businesses of the future back into much more steady businesses that pay you a lot of money back today to kind of cover the cost of borrowing the money. It does make you think, you know, how many of these, you know, large tech names would have been funded if we had a more normalized monetary regime? You know, would we have seen such extraordinary investment and large equity flow into these big tech companies had you not had, you know, such low interest rates? Interestingly, I, I think to some extent you might have seen a lot of it anyway. I mean, if you look through history, there have been all sorts of examples of stock market mania, even when interest costs were higher. So the railway boom in Britain in the 1850s and then a bit later in the United States, nearly all of the initial investors paid huge sums of money with no real prospect of a return at all because they were sold the dream. And it was pretty obvious that railways were going to be the future, just as airlines in the 1920s going to be the future. Automotive companies, perhaps post-war, once mass market production expanded as wartime production was converted to civilian use. Again, hugely capital-intensive businesses needing a lot of money, and investors always gave it to them. I think if, if sufficient sales patter can accompany an investment case, you can sell the investment dream to enough investors that you'll find the capital. I think what might have changed is the number of investments that managed to sound quite so compelling might not have been there. Well, let's use the example of Cathy Wood and her philosophy of trying to find winners of 40 years' time and apply it maybe to the railroads in America or actually the railroads, uh, the railways in the UK, I should say. There were quite a lot of investment bodies buried as they built those railways. And there's a huge difference between growth industries and industries that generate good returns. Because you know you could see a massive overallocation of capital. So Cathy may be swamped by an overallocation of capital, which diminishes returns in, in the short run, um, even though she may be right in the long run. I think she's highly likely to be li- uh, right in the, in the long run. Some of these businesses will succeed. The trouble is if you get even a very small increase in the cost of money, the markdown of those investments, the losses that get realized by the early investors are tremendous. And many of these businesses may fail. Now, if it's a good idea, they'll be recapitalized and more prudent investors who still got some money at that point will be able to hand over more equity to these businesses so that they can keep investing. It would probably slow down the pace of these businesses achieving their full success, but I don't think it would stop it. But the the equity holders who are first in either might be might lose all their money if the business goes bust in the intervening twenty years, which it could do, or find that the demand for money is so significant that more and more equity investors have to hand over more equity to the business and you know just give the business cash so it can keep investing. 
and every time equity is issued by the company, your ownership stake falls a little bit, and in some cases quite a lot. So I think, interesting, you never want to be the early adopter. You want to be the shareholder who is there at the moment it completes its asset and starts operating on a cash generative basis. And some of the best businesses, I think, that um, we've found, or best investments are the ones where they're at that cusp of going from needing equity issuance every year to starting to be able to fund themselves and not need to draw on capital markets anymore. Well, let's say take another example of an investor and kind of a very different type of investor, George Soros, who famously bet against the Bank of England in the early 90s and, and won. Now, he came up with this term reflexivity. What did he mean by reflexivity and how does that sort of guide his investment philosophy? So reflexivity is probably the economic term for feedback loop. Uh, feedback loops have existed in all sorts of scientific processes and systems uh, really since they were created. But it's the idea that the stock market invests based on its perception of reality rather than reality itself. So a business might be terrible, but if the stock market thinks it's good, they'll bid the price up, hand it more cash. The business then, interestingly, might actually be able to get better because it's getting stock market support. And then it starts to improve its operations, at which point the investors uh, who are already in the business say, look, we told you so, it's a great business, it can't possibly fail, etc." then persuade more investors to join in. And those new investors are sort of thrilled because they see early evidence of improvement from the previous investing round. They hand over more cash and the business can continue improving. And you get these, I mean, that's a positive example, but you get these periods where the investment optimism becomes self-fulfilling and you get these huge disequilibriums in stock markets. And this is when you get prices moving uh, a long way away from reality. Perhaps a good example would be the tech bubble, where, again, investors were spot on that the internet was a game changer and was going to spawn all sorts of very innovative and profitable businesses. But they overhyped each other and they persuaded themselves that the internet was brilliant. They gave lots of money to internet businesses. So more internet businesses spawned. The incumbents you know, started to sort of generate operational improvements attracting more investors. And then at some point, this equilibrium isn't sustainable anymore. And uh, there's a reality check. And usually you get sharp swings. So George Soros, as I understand it, often goes around looking for these disequilibria in financial markets, either positive or negative. So it could be that everyone's bearish and can't stand a particular sector or or asset class, uh, and he might go and buy it. But he looks for evidence of this reflexivity, this feedback loop between investors and the companies they own. Well, hang on. What is reflexivity? Is it an approach? Is it a philosophy? Because presumably his philosophy is he's coming at it from a sort of contrarian position. And then, you know, reflexivity is a window through which he takes his contrarian positions. I think the window is probably the best description. I'd say it's an observation of the way asset markets individuals, economies work. And he's used that observation to build a process where he searches for these examples of disequilibria. I think the philosophy would be what we classify as contrarian, which is effectively moving against the herd. 
Well, let's take another big hedge fund giant um, uh, author of one of my favorite books, Ray Dalio, and uh, his book, Principles. He is a massive proponent of the, the idea of radical honesty and radical open-mindedness. And actually, interestingly, I mean, it almost becomes cult-like in the sense that he applies it not only to investment, he also applies it to his life and businesses outside investment. How would you sort of characterize Ray Dalio's philosophy? I think his philosophy of openness is perhaps actually more applicable to life than to stock selection or asset allocation or, or, or really just investment strategy full stop. And his view is that to, to have a good outcome, you need to think independently, be open and honest with your uh, colleagues, your family, whatever circumstances it's in, and say what you really think. And actually, I think it's that mindset, if you then attach an investment philosophy to, I think his investment philosophy is, is perhaps more one of diversification. I take lots of little bets in some way which are not connected to each other might perhaps be his philosophy for investment, but his philosophy for management and for managing his firm and for the way they debate ideas uh, is for his, him and his analysts to say what they really think. And finance is a, is a terrible industry for, for groupthink. I mean, bubbles, I suppose, is the most obvious example of that. Well, 100%. And I mean, I think um, from reading what it's like in, in, in Ray Dalio's morning meeting, the meetings, they can be uh, pretty cutthroat. But I think something he's very clear about is, um, you know, you leave your politics at the door. I don't, you know, he doesn't care about you know, what you think about um, other people in his firm. It's all about, you know, clarity of thought and clarity of opinion, which I guess is evidence-based. So thinking about all these philosophies, okay, we've got, you know, a, a fairly broad group of philosophies. You know, I suppose they're a bit like religions in some senses. You know, there isn't only one. <laughs> There's plenty. How do these then link to an investment approach? And I, and, and I suppose specifically, how do philosophies link to investment objectives? So... The investment objective tends to be aided by a presence of a philosophy because the philosophy helps keep you doing what you set out to do, keeps you focused on your objective. And I think it's very easy to become distracted or to lose focus of what you're trying to achieve. And I think this is why philosophies are so, so important. As you said, there's no right or, or wrong philosophy. In a way, financial markets have a, a, a cruel habit of making uh, philosophies less attractive than more people who adopt them. It's the difference of opinion that creates opportunities. And so not only should you expect lots of philosophies, it, it will be impossible to remove them because if everyone suddenly became a value investor, value stocks would no longer exist. There'd be, everyone would be buying them. And I think the other element that that's quite important is understanding your own weaknesses and your own strengths. So I think any philosophy needs to help you do your job more effectively than if it didn't exist. So examples are biases. Humans are, are filled with biases that are logical. They exist for good evolutionary reasons, but they actually make investing incredibly difficult. So an example could be confirmation bias where all the new information you receive, you filter out the information that disagrees with your view 
and you reinforce your view with the information that conforms to it. And a philosophy should actually help steer you away from that and help you ask questions and help you not eliminate the viewpoints that disagree with you. Another example might be what are called heuristics or, or rules of thumb. And these are shortcuts that we've all used because we've got limited time and it's a way of handling lack of information. But these cognitive biases, these heuristics, can be incredibly damaging. And so having a philosophy that forces you, say, to do detailed analysis for some reason, say you're a fundamental investor, it requires you to do detailed investment analysis on a company. That can be a good approach for you if you're used to using sort of quick rules of thumb. Conversely, you might look at it and say, actually, the rule of thumb, I lack the personal diligence to do it. And then in that case, maybe investing is not for you or certainly fundamental investing is not for you. Maybe maybe you need to be, be a technical investor, which is much more rules of thumb based. Well, let's take technical investing to using chart patterns to predict future price movements. How does philosophy play into technical analysis? Again, it's technical analysis, the process. What's the philosophy behind that process? The concept of technical analysis is that human psychology is a key part of stock markets. And because humans over time are hardwired biologically the same way, if you set up a certain set of circumstances, there's some predictive power in saying that humans went left last time this circumstance existed. Odds are humans will go left again. And so what technical investing is doing is using charts and price patterns and price movements, volume movements, so how many investors are trading or not, to try and identify patterns which have appeared in the past and which have some predictive power of saying where a share price or an asset class or an economic data point Mm. are going. Yeah. Well, they are, I mean, as you said, self-fulfilling in some respects. I mean, if enough people are looking at that chart and thinking the same thing, chances are the chart may move in that direction or the the price may move in that direction. Interestingly, I think as the rise of computers entering the stock market over the last 25 years, I think in some ways they have become much more self fulfilling and there are new methods that you can identify so if you know that a lot of computers trade on eps revisions there's a good chance that the response to a change in eps revisions will be automatic because the computers are programmed to move off that so i I think that's helped where do you think so charlie if you and i were going to set up a uh, an investment management firm at what point maybe this is a hard question and sort of for discussion but what point does one come up with the philosophy is the philosophy something that you draw out first and say, hey, look, these are my non-negotiables. This is how I look at the world. And then we're going to fit all of our investment approach and and, uh, we fit our investment approach around it and we plug our investment process into it. What do you think is the other way around? I think if we were to launch Barnett Jones Investment (laughs) Management Inc. or Limited, when, when, when? (laughs) Um, I think starting a business, you have to be trying to solve a problem for your customers, either save them time, save them money, give them some form of reward. And I think you probably need to identify your market opportunity there. And then depending on that market opportunity, the investment objective you need to deliver to fulfill that opportunity is sort of set for you. Once you've got that 
objective, you can then build a philosophy around how you how you think you can repeatably and consistently deliver that. Now, all of us come with preconceived philosophies, either from a previous role or it just fits our character type. And these should be incorporated into it to make sure that we actually have the skills and capabilities to deliver those outcomes. But I don't think you should start with a philosophy per se. You should tailor your natural philosophy to fit the objective you're trying to deliver for your clients and then stick to it. Uh, well, maybe. Is, is there a going back to our examples of fund managers in the past? Are there philosophies that have sort of had to die a death and are confined to history um, because they've become dated? I don't think that's the case. Certainly, there are a large number of market commentators who suggest that value investing, i.e. looking for inexpensive businesses, is dying. Uh, and that's a function of the cost of money being kept so low. But I think I had to think about what sort of philosophies exist. You've got value, looking for cheaper businesses. There's fundamental, which is believing that the business, the underlying business and the share price should be connected. There's technical, which we've discussed. Uh, there's growth, um, which we've also discussed. There's socially responsible, which is probably the, the newest type of philosophy where you invest with some aim beyond generating a return on your investment. Technically, you, you should be still looking to generate a return on your investment, but there'll be an um, auxiliary aim. There's macro forecasting, which is trying to guess where economies go, where interest rates are going, GDP consumer spending, etc. There's a stock selection where you think that actually maybe macro forecasting is very difficult with low predictive power, but stock selection is more repeatable. It's easier to identify a good business again and again and again. Stock selection usually goes hand in hand with fundamental. Contrarian, which we've talked about, where you, you move away from the herd. There's activist, where you're try, you buy a stake in a business and you try and persuade the management team to run the business better. And there's capital preservation, which is effectively not lose money. I think rougher is perhaps the, the poster child for that, certainly in the UK. And all of these philosophies exist together. And every time that, that, that one falls sufficiently out of favour and enough people move away from it, usually that then starts to create opportunities within that philosophy again. And so I think you've got this self-balancing system with this feedback loop where enough people stopping value investors, value opportunities then start appearing and then someone will spot them and become a value investor again. So I, I don't think they tend to die. I think there are processes that die, usually because the process depended on informational advantage that's removed. So I once heard someone describe financial markets as insider dealing by osmosis where no one actually admits to <laughs> To knowing something, but they know someone who knows someone else, and they had a conversation at lunch, and you know you're 20 links away from the original part, but you, you used mm -hmm. to, you will have an information advantage against the man on the street who's not had that, and and those sorts of processes have gone. I think processes die usually because they're competed away, and I think Buffett said the only difference on between Wall Street now and Wall Street in the Great Depression is the number of MBAs. <laughs> so, <laughs> so I think processes die, but philosophies I think continue. Uh, they just fall in and out of favour. What roles do policymakers have in the speed at which that cycle changes? Because, you know, arguably, let's use your example of value investors. Value investors have been out of favour 
over the last 10 years because discount rates have been, or interest rates have been low, discount rates have been zero, you know, tax rates, which is, I suppose, part of that cost of capital has, have come down. Um, it's been, life has been very, very tough for value investors as a result. And can you, don't know if we want to point the finger too firmly, but can you point the finger at policymakers sort of interfering with that sort of natural ebb and flow of style? I think it's difficult to point a finger at any single group of policymakers, but I think there's a collective fear that's entered policymakers' minds that GDP growth can't slow too much and inflation can't fall by too much. Uh, and I think this really comes out from the, the state of the world. So up until 1750, certainly the Bank of England estimates that wealth per person globally didn't really change for two to 3,000 years. And then suddenly you had the agrarian revolution, you then had the industrial revolution. In the sort of 50s, you, I suppose you had the electronic revolution, uh, which is sort of perhaps maturing now. And now we're having the digital revolution, if that's the right term for it. And these revolutions have massively increased the amount of wealth or you know economic wealth per capita in the world. And to fund that uh, has involved the adoption of vast quantities of debt. And the trouble with debt is you either need to grow it away or pay it down. And it's very difficult to pay it down because the only way that governments can pay debt down is to tax more, which uh, tends to be a vote loser. And the alternative then is to grow. So the only way they can continually try and feed this machine that they've created is keep the cost of money ever lower to stimulate more growth. How sustainable that is and for how long uh, is quite hard to gauge, but certainly probably the collapse of Bretton Woods was the end of some third party restriction on the ability of governments to borrow to stimulate more growth. Maybe it's due we're due for a new monetary system. And maybe this is the we're the sort of on the precipice of that. Finally, Charlie, on this idea of philosophy versus approach, do you have any philosophies that you hold up and think Actually, look, I, I simply don't agree with this. I don't. I think that, that this is sort of fundamentally challenged. Um, I have to tread very carefully here, as I'm sure whatever I say will will upset someone hugely, uh, either externally or certainly at Waverton. Perhaps I might. Very light on this. Get my P60. Perhaps the easiest way would be to say that my natural character type probably lends itself to be willing to spend quite a lot of time researching a business. I would say there's a contrarian streak in me. I really don't like owning what everyone else likes owning just because I like being different. And, and again, there's no rationale for that. That's just the way my mind is, is wired. And perhaps my engineering background meant that I'm suspicious of, of macro forecasting, not because I think it, it's People are not necessarily good or bad at it, but I think I lack any particular ability to process an equation with thousands of variables and feedback loops. I just think it's too difficult. So I suppose for me personally, I, I lean towards a fundamental investor. I try and avoid macro forecasting and there's a contrarian streak. 
I think that's as close as we're going to get you into a box, Charlie. <laughs> no one likes to be put in boxes. Charlie Jones, thank you for joining me. Thank you very much, Doug. It's been great to be here. Thank you for listening to the Why Invest podcast with me, Doug Barnett, Portfolio Manager at Waverton, and our guest this week, Charlie Jones, also from Waverton. Now, if you've enjoyed this episode, why not like it or share it or indeed subscribe to the series? And if you have any questions on any of the topics that we've covered today, then go to our website at waverton.co.uk. The information provided during this podcast does not constitute investment advice and should not be relied on as such. It should not be considered a solicitation to buy or an offer to sell a security.